0: We hope you enjoy today's episode. And I'm really honored to be back and opening up God's Word together for our summer series, Come and See, Experiencing Jesus Through the Gospel of Mark. And when I felt the Lord put this sermon series on my heart a few months ago, my prayer for each one of you during this series was that this would be an opportunity for you to read study, and really get to know one of the gospels, one of the four biblical accounts that we have of Jesus's life and ministry. And just as we've done all summer, we've seen how the people of Jesus's day, they got to come and see for themselves who Jesus was. And in the same way, today, through God's living word, we have been invited also to come and see who Jesus is for ourselves. And we have, we have come to see Jesus who calls us to repentance because the kingdom of God is near. We have come to see Jesus who teaches through parables and challenges us to have the right desire of him alone in our hearts. We've come to see that Jesus is the Messiah and the Savior that the world is waiting for. We've come to see Jesus, who tells us that our hearts are the holy place that he is most concerned about. And we have come and seen Jesus and been invited by him to experience the life that we find when we deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him daily. And tonight, as you open up your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 14, We are coming to the point of the gospel of Mark where the story has really intensified. And before we read it together, I'd love to just pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for tonight. Thank you for your grace that we just sang about. So freely, you lavish your grace over each one of us. God, I pray that you open all of our hearts and minds tonight so that we might receive the word that you have for us. We love you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Find me in Mark chapter 14, verses one through nine. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. "'Leave her alone,' said Jesus. "'Why are you bothering her? "'She has done a beautiful thing. "'The poor you will always have with you, "'and you can help them anytime you want, "'but you will not always have me. "'She did what she could. "'She she poured perfume on my body beforehand "'to prepare for my burial.'" Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Right away in Mark chapter 14, we learn when we see Jesus before the festival that the world will not understand our acts of worship for God. In fact, this has been a theme for us for all of the Gospel of Mark, that we've been talking about how following Jesus requires our full selves. And that means that God is going to ask us to serve him in huge ways that the world just won't understand. I think a really great example of this is your life group leaders, so right now, I want you to like, lean, look around the room, make eye contact with your life group leader, give them a wave, find your life group leader, give them a wave, say that you love them, say that you love them, say hello. Okay, your life group leaders, my friends, your life group leaders, we love them, right? This is something that did not sink in for me when I was an HSM student, so I'm, I'm hoping that it sinks in for you right now. Your life group leaders, are 100% volunteers. That means that not one of them gets paid to be here every single Wednesday night and Sunday morning and all of the camps and all of the extra hangouts that you guys like to do. They're not getting paid. Alex is confused, he's waiting for his check, but sorry, bud, you don't get paid for this, sorry. Um, But you're locked in for four years, so I'm so sorry. Um, Your life group leaders are not in it for any money or any reward. You wanna know what their reward is? Their reward is that they love God, and they want to obey him, and they feel like God is calling them to serve high school students so that you can experience the best thing that you ever can in life, and that is a relationship with Jesus. I did some math. Your life group leaders, not including camps and all of those extra hangouts, For four years, your life group leaders commit to 560 hours serving in HSM. That is unbelievable. And that's why, in so many ways, your life group leaders are my heroes. And I can guarantee you that most of their coworkers, most of their classmates, most of our friends and family even, to be honest, they cannot understand why we would spend so much of our time and energy investing in serving high school students. But we do it because when we serve in huge ways for the Lord, it is always a beautiful thing, just like Jesus says, and it is always worth it. Here, this woman's act, she got to prepare Jesus for his burial. This woman got that honor because she thought and believed and lived out that Jesus is worth more than the best that I have. Probably the best thing that she owned, she poured out on Jesus and Jesus honored her for it. And in fact, in all four of the Gospels, her story is recorded just like Jesus said it would be. And Mark 14 continues in verses 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, one of Jesus' closest followers, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. We are approaching the climax of this story, and I hope that you feel it, that every part of this story is working to build the tension to lead up to the most important part. And you guys, this is crazy. Like, if you think the Bible is boring, that's okay, this is a safe place to admit that, but if you think the Bible is boring, I would really encourage you to read it, like, did you, did you just hear what we just read, that, that maybe even, even, this is just crazy. Like, even if you've heard this uh, story a hundred times before, we should be on the edge of our seats. Maybe you have studied some ancient Greek plays in your schools, and you've heard about this concept called dramatic irony. And dramatic irony is what happens when the audience or a character knows something that another character doesn't. And right now, we, the audience of the Gospel of Mark, we have a pretty serious, a pretty dramatic case of dramatic irony. We know something pretty huge that most of the disciples at this point have no idea. And that is that the plan to kill Jesus is set in motion that he's already been betrayed and that Judas is looking for an opportunity to hand Jesus over. But Jesus is not just another character in some sort of made-up story. Jesus is the living God. And like I said earlier, we get to experience him through his living word. And so Jesus knows exactly what just happened. He knows exactly what will happen. And here is how he responds, verses 16 through 26. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table, eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me? It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man." It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. There's a lot in this passage. It's worth more study that you can talk about in your life groups tonight. But something that I really want you to notice here is that Jesus blesses the meal after he reveals that one of his followers will betray him. You guys catch that? For us today, if, if we find out that someone betrayed us, we are more likely to cancel them than share a meal with them. And we definitely would not want to bless them. But that is what Jesus does. And the meal that they share together symbolizes what Jesus is about to do through his death. And all of this happens during the festival of the Passover. And if you are wanting to dig deeper into God's word and into your relationship with Jesus, here's my challenge for you. This week, over the next couple of weeks, dig into the Old Testament and read Exodus and other parts of the Old Testament that talk about the Passover and the Passover festival and then come tell me what you learn. The Passover was an event that God used to deliver the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. The Exodus is what it's called. And at Passover, an innocent, sacrificial lamb was killed And it was the blood of that innocent lamb that protected the Israelites from death. And if you start to make some connections here, that sounds a lot like another sacrificial lamb, the sacrificial lamb who would give his own life to protect all of humanity from death, even those who betray and reject him, and all they have to do is trust him. In fact, that's what we learn about Jesus at the table at the Passover festival. Jesus wants to save the people who will betray and reject him because he loves them. And friends, that is really, really good news because not all of us might, not all of us will betray and reject Jesus in as dramatic of a way that Judas did, but each one of us, and I'll be the first to admit, Betray or reject Jesus in some way every single day. I do that, even as a believer, even as someone who I wanna trust Jesus my whole life over to Jesus. I betray and reject Jesus every single day, I fall short. And so thank God that he would want to save even a sinner like me. That is grace. That is grace, getting what we do not deserve. And even though Jesus loves us, don't think for a second that it was easy for Jesus to go to the cross. Because Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully man, which means that he experienced every single level of a physical and emotional pain that we would have experienced in his torturous death. But we didn't have to because he took our place. And we get a glimpse of this pain and anxiety that Jesus experienced in verses 32 through 36, where we find Jesus in the garden. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. We have some pretty heavy passages tonight. But I also love that those verses are in God's word because Jesus' prayer is such an encouragement and an example to each one of us. The way that he prayed, there are three truths in there at least that we can all apply to our own prayer lives today. The first thing we learn about Jesus' prayer is that we can be brutally honest with God. Jesus said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. That is serious. And it breaks my heart because I know that there are so many of you students in this room who have felt that way before. Maybe you're feeling it right now. And you're wondering, can God even handle this? Does God even care that my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death? I just wanna say that if you've been there or you are there, I'm so sorry that you've ever felt that way. And I can't even begin to fathom what that's like. But can I lovingly and gently point you to Jesus who knows exactly what that feeling is like? That we don't have a God who's up in his high places. We have a God who sympathizes and empathizes with us and our weaknesses and our pain. And he's also the only God who knows what it's like to conquer sin and sorrow and death. He wants you to be brutally honest with him. We also see that we can boldly ask for God to move. That Jesus said, everything is possible for you, Father. Take this cup from me. And the cup, meaning in scripture, it's associated with God's wrath, or his judgment. And because Jesus was perfect, he did not deserve death. So by dying, he took on the cup. He took on God's wrath and judgment for us so that we would not have to experience that. That's where we get words, um, sometimes we talk about words like atonement or substitution. This is where we get those ideas from that Jesus took our place by experiencing the wrath of God for us. And Jesus boldly said, Father, if there's any way I can get out of this, would you take your cup from me? But then the third truth we learn from Jesus' prayer is a requirement And it's that we must humbly submit to God's will and desires. We can do all of those things. We can be brutally honest with him. We can boldly ask for him to move. But at the end of the day, we must humbly submit to God's will and desires. Because Jesus said, take this cup from me, Father. I don't want it. But not my will, but yours be done. And thanks be to God that that is the prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane all those years ago. You see, Jesus chose to trust the Father and sacrifice himself in order to save everyone, everywhere. And this is a place in the story where it's worth pausing. Think about it, that the God of the universe, if everything that we've studied and marked together is true, then we know that the God of the universe came to earth, lived the perfect life that you and I never could, so that when he died the death that he did not owe, he paid the price for our sins, so that we could experience a relationship with him together again. He saved us. And scripture says in Philippians chapter three that it's only by participating in Christ's death with him, meaning only when we die to our sins, to our idols, to our old selves, that we can ever then participate in his resurrection and experience abundant, everlasting, spirit-filled life with him. And if you're wondering, valid question, well, what? does that mean to participate in Christ's death? Well, we do that spiritually every single day in the ways that we've been talking about all summer. Dying to ourselves, participating in Christ's death is what happens every time we deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him. But we also participate in Christ's death every time we take communion. And in that way, We participate in it with him symbolically. And right now, before we head to life groups, we are going to worship with one more song, and we are going to have the opportunity to take communion. Now, communion is a recreation of the last supper that Jesus shared with his followers before his death on the cross that we just studied together. And communion is taking the elements that symbolize Jesus's death, his body and his blood, the bread and the juice, and remembering the sacrifice that he made for us. And because this is so serious, communion is for those who would call themselves followers of Jesus. So as our leaders prepare to, in a few moments, um, come down the aisles and pass out our little communion cups, if you would not um, follow, if you would not call yourself a follower of Jesus tonight, that's okay. We're so glad that you're here, and we hope that you keep being a part of this community and growing together and learning what it does mean to follow Jesus. And so you you don't have to participate in communion tonight. If you do want to become a follower of Jesus, that's so awesome. Would you come talk to me or your life group leader tonight? And if you would call yourself a follower of Jesus tonight, I invite you as we worship together in a few moments and you receive your communion, I invite you to peel back the layers, take the bread and the cup, which was broken and poured out for you. And remember what Jesus did for you. And take the opportunity, as you remember, to confess the ways that you have not been honoring Jesus with your life lately. And for all of us, we are going to worship with a worship song called, Oh, Come to the Altar. And if you caught me at the very beginning, one of the ways that we served in Japan was leading worship. And whenever we led worship for um, high schools or colleges or for the church that we were partnering with, we sang this song. And because Jesus' sacrifice is for you and it's for me, but it's also for the whole world, we're going to sing this song the way that we did it in Japan with half of our Japan team up here and some of the parts in Japanese. And Oh, Come to the Altar is a song that is all about the invitation that Jesus gives to us at the cross and at the empty tomb. Because of his sacrifice, he made a way for us to draw near to him once again. And when we do that, when we come to his altar and we lay our lives down, we surrender, we experience his forgiveness. And then we're given the Holy Spirit and we get to experience life with God, for God, for forever. And as we sang this song over and over again in Japan, I felt the Lord put this question on my heart. What is stopping you from coming to the altar? Right now, I want everyone to close their eyes for a minute, close your eyes, and I want you to think about that question. What is stopping you from coming to the altar? What's stopping you from fully surrendering your life to Jesus? What is that thing or those couple things that you just can't give over and trust the Lord with? What is stopping you from coming to the altar? And once you have your answer, I'm going to ask you a second question. And I'm not asking this to be mean. I'm not asking this to scare you. I'm asking this because I love you. And this is what I felt the Lord challenged me with. Is that a good enough reason? Is whatever you're thinking about a good enough reason to miss out on a relationship with your savior. You can open your eyes. On our last day on mission in Japan, I was sitting with the pastor of the church we were partnering with in Japan, Pastor Mikito. And I asked him, Pastor, what is something that you wish the American church knew about the Japanese church? And he said that Japan is a very developed country. And he said, unfortunately, a lot of people then seem to think that it's a little unnecessary to send missionaries there. But the truth is that most of the people of Japan do not know the name of Jesus. And he said, Japan, in his opinion, is economically prospering But it's spiritually suffering. And we got to experience that just a little bit in the short time that we were there. In Japan, I actually think a lot of the Japanese culture is really Christ-like. Serve others, practice self-control and patience and gentleness put others above yourself sacrificially and generously. The problem is the Japanese people are trying to do all of those things out of their own strength. And I guarantee it every time that we try to perform for God or for others, we always get tired and we always fail. I really believe that the gospel, that leaning on God's love and power and his strength would be the relief that so many of the Japanese people are looking for. But even when the gospel does go out in Japan, there are many obstacles that get in the way of people actually receiving it. We got to spend time with a Christian club that was meeting on a college campus. And it was so beautiful to see their passion seeking after Jesus. But in general, in Japan, there is a suspicion of organized religion. And so if this club, is unwise in the ways that they share the good news. If they grow too quickly, the school will shut down their club and stop them from meeting. The dominant religion in Japan is Buddhism. And closely tied with that religion is this deep cultural practice to make altars and pray to your ancestors, to your family who's gone before you. And that might seem like something hard for us to wrap our brain around, but can you just empathize with that for a minute? Think about what that means. That means that it is a deeply personal thing for every Japanese person who prays to their own family. And so you can imagine that saying yes to Jesus, which would mean saying yes to only praying to him alone, would be a bold and sacrificial decision to make to stop praying to your ancestors. And even if someone did make that decision, it would be seen as dishonoring, even as abandoning your own family. And maybe you've heard this before, but the Christian population of the country of Japan is just about 1%. 1% of the whole country would call themselves followers of Christ. And I got a little convicted because I felt like over the last year or two, we've been talking more and more about how being a Christian in America has, is becoming increasingly unpopular. And I believe in a lot of ways that that's true. But we don't have a 1% Christianity rate. It's a deeply lonely life that a Japanese person would say yes to, to following Jesus. We have brothers and sisters in Japan who I believe have a lot of good reasons not to come to the altar, but they do every single day because the good news of the gospel is the greatest news that they have ever heard. And they know that worshiping Jesus, even when the world, even when the country, even when their own family might not understand it, they know that it is worth it every single time. And so HSN, as your pastor, as someone who loves you and wants the best for you, I ask you, with a firmness, but gentleness, with all the love in my heart, HSM, will you also choose to accept Jesus's invitation to come to his altar? And over the next few moments, as we worship together and as we take communion, I invite you to pray and think about